That's the, the, the great promise of 1 John 1, 9. So let's take a moment of silent prayer before we begin our study of the Word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you help us not squander it, help us take it seriously and transform our thoughts, transform our person by your truth. We know there is power in it, and we know that it will not return to you void. So we ask that you do your work in and through us by the power of of your word this evening that we may go forth from here as your messengers to a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in a study of First Samuel. And really, for over a year now, we've been studying narrative literature, first in the book of Judges and now in the book of Samuel, that is, First uh, Samuel. Narrative literature is historical events. Narrative literature is a narrative, right? It's, it's, it's a description and a listing of historical events. And so let me just spend a few minutes this evening refreshing your memory about the purpose of narrative literature. It's recorded in Scripture not simply so that we can learn a story. It's not there just so that we can have more data about this little nation in the Middle East called Israel that has been there for thousands of years. It was a hiatus when it wasn't there, but it's there again. We study narrative literature, and the Bible is, especially the Old Testament, is full of narrative literature, not so that we can just learn a bunch of data and a bunch of facts. It's there so that we can learn about God and about ourselves. There are many things that God teaches us through the narrative literature of Israel's history. Let me just talk about three this evening, just by way of refresher. Number one, God uses Israel's history to reveal his character through narrative literature like 1 Samuel, like the book of Judges, like the book of Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, the book of Ruth. Narrative literature, Jonah, although Jonah's a prophet, there's a lot of prophetic literature in the book of Jonah. Through narrative literature, we see God display and reveal his character, his essence, his attributes, like his holiness or his righteousness or his grace, his mercy, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. And we see God's character, his attributes, by observing how he deals with Israel, by observing how he deals with a rebellious Israel, by observing how he deals with an obedient Israel, an Israel that is sometimes up and is sometimes down, that is sometimes engaged like a pig in the mud in worship of idols, and sometimes she is engaged as, as a clean, beautiful nation in worship of the living God. We see the essence of God, the attributes of God, the nature, the character of God, in narrative literature with respect to Israel's history because we observe how he deals with a nation that is most often, more often than not, in rebellion. This is where we see God's mercy. This is where we see God's sovereignty and his omnipotence because he makes promises to Israel and then he is potent, powerful enough, sovereign enough. I use the word enough advisedly because it's almost... A bad word to use with God because his power is limitless and his sovereignty is limitless. But what we see in narrative literature is him display his sovereignty and his mercy and his omnipotence and his faithfulness to a nation, Israel, who is primarily disobedient. She's obedient sometimes, but more often than not, she is disobedient. The second thing that I want to remind you of that God teaches us through narrative literature, which is to say the history of Israel, is that God uses Israel's history to reveal the outworking of his plan. He does that for the benefit of Israel, and he does that for the benefit of all peoples. His plan, is to, in other words, is for the benefit of Israel, and his plan, the outworking of his plan, 
is for the benefit of all people groups. This is why he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You cannot understand the Bible. You cannot understand the Bible unless you understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, because it is God's revelation. It's the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant ends, at least the the part of the covenant that is given there, it ends with 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God's plan is to bless Israel, and through Israel, it's to bless you and me. It's to bless the Gentiles. In the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we're seeing this plan unfold through the history of Israel because the book of Samuel is marching. We're only in chapter 8 this evening. The book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, is consistently, methodically marching to the revelation of God's plan for a Jewish king to rule Israel, to sit on a Jewish throne forever and ever and ever for the benefit of Israel and the nations. Remember, we study Israel and we acknowledge Israel's exalted position, not because Israel is so amazing, but because God is so amazing. And in His sovereignty, He has chosen Israel as a pipeline, so to speak, as a conduit through which He sends blessings to the nations. But in order to bless the nations, He has to first bless Israel because She is the one who he has chosen to communicate his blessing to the world. That's why the Savior of the world is a Jew. That's why all the apostles are Jews. That's why the ruler of the world, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is a Jew who will rule from the capital of the Jews. He's not going to rule from New York. He's not going to rule from Beijing. He's going to rule from Yerushalayim, from Jerusalem. Because through Jerusalem, which is to say through Israel, all the blessings of God will flow to all the peoples, first to Israel and then to the Jews. The third thing that I just want to refresh your memories about with respect to how God teaches us through Israel's history is that God uses Israel's history to reveal warnings, warnings about the consequences of sin. This is why you see Israel's sin cycle repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. We're actually in the sin cycle now. Remember the sin cycle? We we saw it many, 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 many times in the book of Judges. And each time in the book of Judges, it wasn't just circular or or cyclical. It was cyclical, but every time it would degrade a little more and degrade a little more. Remember the sin cycle. They entered into sin. God punished them. It hurt, so they repented. God's punishment got their eyes off of everything that was rosy, everything that was great, prosperity. It's, ah, it's all good. And then God took out the belt and whipped them, and then they they got their eyes off of the material world, and they submitted back to God. So the sin cycle was sin, punishment, repentance. God relents, or he delivers, and then blessing, or rest. We're in the sense, we see the sin cycle today of Israel. In the year 2022, they're in the punishment part of the sin cycle. When Christ returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation, they will, after additional punishment during the seven-year tribulation, then they will be in the repentance phase, and then there will be blessing, untold blessing. My point is this. The reason why we see the sin cycle of Israel, and, and you know, in Judges, every time they would enter the cycle again, again for sin, the idolatry would be a little more intense, and the sin would be a little more grotesque. And so we see this, not so we can say, boy, those guys were messed up. Israel, you, you, oh, what a bunch of, oh, you guys were a mess. It's so that we can look at them and look in the mirror and say, ah, ah, ah. they do what we do, what you do, what I do. That's what God does with narrative literature, is he uses Israel's history to warn us about the consequences of sin. This is the same sin cycle 
that characterizes our own spiritual lives. When we wander off into the tulis and God takes out the belt, wander off in the tulis, we sin, and God takes out the belt and punishes us and it hurts, then we repent. We change our mind about our sin. We confess our sin. We change our mind. We run from it. And then he relents. We obey. And then there's blessing. Because obedience always, always, always precedes blessing. The point is that God uses Israel as the vehicle for his revelation. You don't find anything in the scripture about China in the Old Testament. Now there's the king of the east. We talk about that in terms of prophecy. But that's in the, in the tribulation. I'm talking about with respect to the Old Testament events, with respect to narrative literature. You don't find anything about China. You don't find anything about North America or South America or Scandinavia. It's about Israel because God has chosen Israel to be the vehicle through which he reveals his revelation. Revelation that is not just for the benefit of Israel, but that is for the benefit of the nations. This is why we as Gentiles study Israel's history, why we study narrative literature. Last time we were together, we saw chapter 7 of the first book of Samuel, and we saw something in the history of Israel that we had not seen in a long, long time. That something was military victory. Prior to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, we hadn't seen a major military victory in Israel until or since Jephthah. The judge Jephthah in Judges chapter 9 where he defeats the sons of Ammon, the Ammonites who had been plaguing the eastern part of the land of the Jews. And so the judge Jephthah delivers this great military victory and yet that military victory is tainted with great, great tragedy because the judge Jephthah, having a paganized view of God, makes this rash vow and ultimately ends up sacrificing his daughter, this horrible sacrifice of his daughter. And so even the the blessing of military victory in that context was tainted and tinged by this horror of the sacrifice, of a human sacrifice of the daughter of the judge, Jephthah. But with this judge in the book of Samuel, remember Samuel is the last of the judges, the last of the judges appointed by God. With this judge, you see nothing Nothing but blessing associated with the victory, with the military victory that we saw last time in chapter 7. There was a military victory that was untainted by tragedy because through Samuel's prayer, God delivered a decisive defeat over the Philistines. And the defeat was so decisive that the Philistines run. We saw last time in chapter 7 that the Israelites were able to expand their territory and reclaim land on the border of, that, that used to be their land, on the border of the, very close to the land of the Philistines. And we also saw that the Amorites, which is another name for the Canaanites, were hands off. They had peace with Israel because there was strength through military victory. This is the peace and the prosperity that were ushered in through Samuel's prayer and through Samuel leading. This is just by way of review from from last time in chapter 7. Peace and prosperity. Prosperity in the form of military victory. Peace in the form of no war. And all of this was brought about by Samuel's prayer but even more important than that, by Samuel leading the people to repentance, repentance from their idolatry, where they put away their foreign gods and they cried out. It says they poured out before Yahweh. They cried out to him for mercy. Mercy in terms of deliverance from their enemy who had been plaguing them, who had better technology, better weapons, because the Philistines used iron, which the Israelites did not. And so, as we saw last time, Obedience always precedes blessing. That's true in the history of Israel, and that's true in our own individual lives. Today our passage begins with 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. It reads like this. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. 
Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. These few verses cover around a a 30-year period, roughly from 1084 B.C. to 1054 B.C. What we're seeing in chapter 7, as we studied last time, and as we're closing out here at the beginning of the message this evening, chapter 7 this evening, what we're seeing in this chapter is God revealing the godly nature of Samuel's rulership. Of all aspects of Samuel's rulership and judgeship and leadership over the nation, he delivers not just military victory and peace, but also good governance. Samuel, this, our passage here, verses 15 and 17, what they're telling us is that Samuel travels his circuit like a, like a circuit judge. Like the old circuit judges like in, in Texas 100 years ago, 150 years ago. The judge would go around to the different towns and they'd, they'd, they'd keep the prisoner sequestered until it's time for the judge to show up. This is what Samson is doing. He's traveling. But remember, the use of the term judge here in our study is the Hebrew word shafat. It's different. It's broader than our use of the word judge, the fellow in the robe who sits behind the bench. It includes a ruler a political ruler. It includes a military leader. And so Samuel judged, which means he ruled, he governed, and he does it all in a godly fashion. You know that from the end of verse 17. Because at the end of verse 17, it says, he built an altar to Baal. Is that what it says? No. He built an altar to the Ashtaroth. Is that what it says? No. He built an altar to Yahweh because he was colored. His thoughts, his priorities, his worship were were colored by Yahweh. The way that he governed was colored by Yahweh. The rulers of a nation are influenced by their religion. Everybody's religious. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something. And when you worship the living God, then you're rulership, your governance, is reflected by his, or reflects his righteousness. That's what we're seeing in chapter 7. We're seeing this full picture of how godly Samuel's rulership was. Because Samuel, as we saw last time, is being developed. He's being groomed by God. God is using Samuel and developing him and giving him successes Number one, because Samuel is obedient to God. But number two, because God is establishing the credibility of Samuel, the gravitas, the credentials of Samuel as his representative, as his agent. Because very soon God will use Samuel to anoint a king, to walk up and say, that's the king, all you people, the whole Israel, that's the king, you need to follow him. And so Samuel's got to have the credibility, the street street credibility the credence to be able to do that and for the people then to believe that he actually speaks for God, that he is God's agent. This is what is happening in these events of all of these successes that God is giving Samuel. Before we see the the kingship, the kingmaker, I should say, the kingmaker role of Samuel, we first see his sons. Look at chapter 8. Verse 1. This is kind of sad here. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. Beersheba is, is a little bit uh, further south. It's in the, in the southern part of the land of the Jews. Verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. What a sad, sad description. What a sad reality for the offspring of a man of God. For the sons of Samuel, the greatest of all the judges. He's not just a judge, he's also a prophet. Every generation stands on its own two feet. Kids have free will, just like their parents. And some kids submit to the authority of God, and some do not. We assume 
that Samuel followed God's command to teach his kids about God's ways. Right? This command is early on given in the law. You see here on the screen Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, where Moses says, You shall teach them, the them is, are God's words, you shall teach God's words to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. God told His people to teach God's truth to the next generation. We assume that Samuel, being a man of God, did that. Proverbs says that teaching a child when he is young will produce godliness later in life. Look at Proverbs 22.6. Many of you are familiar with this proverb. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But we need to be careful with Proverbs. We need to be careful with Proverbs. Because not all Proverbs are guarantees. Not all Proverbs are promises from God. Some Proverbs are unconditional, ironclad promises from God. They're absolute guarantees, like Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not let, lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. That's an absolute ironclad promise from God. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own, own understanding, He will make your paths straight. There's no wiggle room there. There's no exceptions to that promise from God same thing for Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. This is an ironclad promise from God. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Live in the fear of Yahweh always. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. If you fear God, then you have a glorious future. It is an absolute promise, no exceptions from God. But... There are other promises, excuse me, there are, there are other proverbs that are not unconditional promises from God. Like Proverbs 20, verse 13, Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with food. In other words, this proverb is saying, If you work hard, hardworking people will have material prosperity, and lazy people will not. Well, there's some exceptions to that, right? I mean, you could have a lazy person inherit a huge amount of wealth, and they're just lazy as can be. Or you could have a hardworking person who gets his wealth stolen from him, wrongly stolen from him, like when the Philistines invade and burn all your crops or, or take all your crops, or the Jebusites or any of those invading armies. So here, in Proverbs 20, verse 13, you see a general statement that has exceptions to it. It's something that is generally true most of the time, but not 100% of the time. Same thing with Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart, depart from it. That is true most of the time. That is a general statement, but it's not a guarantee what you have are two different types of Proverbs. Some Proverbs are absolute guarantees, ironclad promises from God. And other Proverbs are general principle Proverbs and the way you distinguish one from the other. You're reading along in the book of Proverbs, you say, well, how do I know if this is an ironclad promise or if this is a, a general statement that there are exceptions to what I'm reading? The way you determine that, the way you, you, you distinguish between one type of proverb that is a general rule, that has exceptions, and another type of proverb that is an absolute promise from God, a divine promise, is you look elsewhere in Scripture. If the proverb is found elsewhere as a divine promise, then the proverb is a promise that's just restated as a proverb. If the proverb, on the other hand, is not found elsewhere as a divine promise, then it's likely a general principle that has exceptions, like train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
that's not found as a promise in Scripture. It's not found as a ironclad divine promise in Scripture. So it's a general principle that's observed most of the time. The majority of the time. It's usually true that a parent who teaches God's ways to his child, to her child, gives the child a gift that keeps on giving. Right? When you teach a child the ways of God, the truth of God, what you're doing is giving them a gift that's going to keep giving to them beyond childhood, beyond adolescence. It's a gift that will continue to provide for them. Because the parent's labor of teaching God's truth to the youth yields fruit well beyond childhood. Because when the, when the child grows up, that teaching continues to teach him even though the parent may not be instructing the child anymore because the parent has done her duty. The parent has done his duty and provided that gift of God's truth, which is the gift that keeps on giving. But that's not always true. It's true most of the time when you teach a child that the child, when you teach a child in God's ways, that the child will follow it when the child is, is older. But it's not always true. Sometimes kids use their free will to reject the teaching and they suffer the consequences, sadly. We cannot say exactly what happened with Samuel's sons. Did he teach them God's ways and they rejected? Or did he fail to teach them God's ways? We don't know. Chapter 8, verse 3 doesn't tell us. All we know is that they were dishonest, that they perverted justice, and that they did not walk in their father's ways. Now, I must say, it's odd that verse 1 says that Samuel appointed his son judges, his sons as judges. Because judgeship was not hereditary. You don't find that in the scripture. Judgeship is something that is appointed by God. So this is very strange. The appointment of judges was usually done by God, and it was not hereditary. You see this with how the individual judges are described in the book of Judges, and you see it in the introductory part of the book of Judges. Like in chapter 2 of the book of Judges, verse 16, it says, The Lord raised up judges who delivered Israel. Or chapter 2, verse 18 of the book of Judges, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. For whatever reason, Samuel appointed his son's judges And they were utterly unfit to rule, utterly unfit to lead, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows they're wrong for the job. Keep reading. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to to Samuel at Ramah. Remember, Ramah is where Samuel lives. We know that from chapter 7, verse 17. Keep reading. And they said to him, Behold, You have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Samuel's no spring chicken. He's not young anymore. They know it, and they know that when he's gone, the elders know that when he's gone, someone else is going to need to lead, and his sons are not the option. They're not the ones that should be leading. Samuel was a national leader, unlike the other judges. Remember when we studied the book of Judges, they were regional leaders. There'd be a leader in Judah or a leader in in the northern part of of the land of the Jews, in Naphtali or, or a leader in the eastern part. They were regional leaders is who the judges were, but not the last of the judges, not Samuel. He led the entire nation. He ruled as God's agent as the entire nation And so it's for this reason that the elders, in thinking about who's going to fill your boots or your sandals, they're thinking about a national leader. We need another national leader because our current one, Samuel, is a national leader. But they ask for a new position. They don't ask for another judge. They don't ask Samuel, Samuel, look, we know your sons are not the right ones. You know your sons are not the right ones. Come on. I mean, everybody knows that, Samuel. So why don't you pray to God and ask for another judge who will lead the nation? That's not how this conversation goes. This conversation goes, the elders say, we want a new position. You're you're in your twilight years, Samuel. We want a new position. We want a king, not a judge. Keep reading. 
Verse 6, But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This verse begins in the Hebrew, Vayarach hadabor ba'ene shamuel. Displeasing was this, was the matter in the eyes of Shamuel, in the eyes of Samuel. My point is the sentence begins in the Hebrew with the word displeasing, which is the Hebrew verb ra'ah. And ra'ah sounds the way it means, something that is no bueno, something that is not good, ra'ah. Ra'ah means in this context something that is evil. Something that is displeasing. In the Hebrew, like in the Greek, they're not so concerned about word order, and so they move words around, and they'll put a word at the beginning of the sentence to really emphasize that word. That's why the sentence in the Hebrew begins with the verb ra'ah, evil, or displeasing. This thing is displeasing evil in the eyes of Samuel. It's an absolute offense So he prays to the Lord. Look at the Lord's response in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from from being king over them. Roughly 30 years have passed since this great blessing of the military victory at the at the uh, that was commemorated there in at the second Ebenezer, which we studied last time in chapter 7. Remember, chapter 7 is, is where, the, where Samuel delivered this great military victory. It was the blessing of military victory over the Philistines. They get peace. They get prosperity. As I mentioned earlier, it's at, it's at Ebenezer. They named the place Ebenezer. And that generation, from 30 years earlier, repented of their sin. And when God gave them victory over the Philistines, they celebrated. God gave them peace and prosperity. But now there's a new generation. There's a new generation that doesn't know the things of God. That doesn't know what God has done. That doesn't know God's promises. A new generation that has forgotten the promises of God and forgotten the victories that God has delivered. And the reason they forgot is because they had no adversity. It was all roses. It was peace and prosperity. And what happens, this is a sign, this is a sad, sad reality of the broken, pathetic condition of the human heart. When we get prosperity that God gives us as a blessing, we don't care about God anymore. We tend to be disinterested in God and to be so enamored with the blessing, that we forget that it's a blessing from God. And so we get our eyes exclusively on the prosperity, on the things that are nice. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. You have prosperity? Well, praise God for it. But what happens is, in our fallen, broken condition, we have a tendency to be so consumed with the prosperity that we get our eyes off of God. We forget that the prosperity comes from God and we tend to trust in our prosperity instead of in the God who gives us prosperity. So to use the language of Judges chapter 2, verse 10, there arose another generation who did not know God, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. This new generation doesn't trust the Lord. Instead, they trust in a king. They don't trust that the Lord will provide, so they want a king. Actually, them asking for a king is not bad. There's really nothing wrong for them wanting a king, asking for a king. God had promised a human king many, many, many times in, his, in Israel's, in, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, back in Genesis Chapter 17, verse 15, God promised that a king would come through Abraham. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Peoples is a broad term. 
It's broad enough to include kings within Israel and kings of other nations. Remember, the, uh, Abraham is the father of many nations. Many Arabs claim their lineage back to Abraham. So Genesis 17 is a broad promise from God that kings would come from the loins of Abraham and Sarah. Keep reading. Genesis 35, verse 9. Here we have God narrowing the promise of, of a human king by revealing that the king would come through Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. Genesis 35, 9 reads like this. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called... <clears throat> excuse me. Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. Israel means the one who struggles with God or striving with God. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. Then God narrows the promise of kings, of Jewish kings, even more of a human king even further by revealing that he would come through Jacob's son Judah not through his other 11 sons Genesis 49:10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall the obedience shall be the obedience of the peoples a scepter a ruler's staff those are regal tools those are symbols of regal authority and then, finally, before the people enter into the land, God describes and instructs to them His design for a Jewish king. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Here we see God's design for the kings of Israel. They were to be different than the kings of the other nations. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, and beyond, we see Israel's king was supposed to be dependent on Yahweh, was supposed to be different than the kings of their neighbors. Look at verse 14. When you enter the land and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves, who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Very important. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Very important. Or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Very important. You see, Israel's king was to be different than the kings of other nations. He wasn't supposed to amass horses. Well, when you amass horses, you amass horsemen. And when you amass horses and horsemen's, horsemen, you amass chariots. That's a way of saying, when, when it says, he shall not multiply horses, it's a way of saying, no standing army. The king of Israel is not to have a standing army. Why? Because I'm your army, God says. No standing army. Number two, you're not to multiply wives. The king is not to multiply wives. No big harem like the neighboring kings. What's the primary reason for a harem? I mean, there are a number of reasons, but the primary reason was a political reason. It's political alliances. I tell you what, I'll marry your daughter, and then we won't go to war. And then I'll marry your daughter, and we won't go to war. And, and so the harem grows, and the harem grows, and the harem grows, so that you can have these marriage treaties, these, this peace with each of these different nations because now we're kin, now we're family. That's the idea here and God says none of that. The king of Israel is not supposed to have to amass an army. He's not supposed to amass a harem and he's not supposed to amass a treasury. No big truck full of money. No big treasury full of, full of gold and silver. Why, why, why would a king want a treasury? 
because there's power in money, right? I mean, if he needs to hire a bunch of mercenaries, he's got the money to do it. If he needs to fund his troops, he's got the money to do it. God says none of those things. For my king, among my people, none of those things. Instead, Israel's king, king was to rely on God and God's character. He was to rely on God's omnipotence, on God's sovereignty, that God is in complete control, on God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Israel. Keep reading verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. God is still describing what the Jewish king, his design for a Jewish king. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. What's the law? The law is the Mosaic law. The king was to write it, right? We think, don't let the liberal professors tell you that the ancients were a bunch of morons, that the ancients were a bunch of mud farmers, and they're just dummies. No, 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 no. They knew how to write. They knew how to read. Not everybody, but just because literacy is is much higher today doesn't mean that, that they were inept and dumb and so... You need to be careful when you, when you hear the teaching of these liberal professors that we're so much smarter, we're so much brilliant, so much, we've evolved so much. There's not that much difference. Now, I know we have, we have running water and we have air conditioning and things like that, but literacy existed back then. Maybe not at the, at the grand scale that it has that it exists now, but they could people people knew how to think, people knew how to reason. And here God is saying, with respect to the king, you write the law. The king is to write the law so that it is in his soul. Write for himself a copy of this law, verse eighteen says, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So they're witnesses. They're witnesses. Verse nineteen. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Study the word of God. In other words, that's what the, the king was to do. He shall read it and it will be, and it read it all the days of his life that he may learn, here we go, to fear Yahweh his God. That's the key requirement for God's design for Israel's king. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statues, the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up among his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Because remember, God punishes. The Abrahamic, excuse me, the Mosaic covenant is if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And one of the blessings is military victory. And one of the curses is military defeat. The point here in Deuteronomy 17 is that God's design for Israel's king was to live by God's law. To rely on God's law, to rely on God's provision, not on the king's powers, and most importantly, God's design for Israel's king was to fear Yahweh, his God. This was critical so that the king would not become arrogant and abuse his people. That's why you see this phrase here in verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. What's the old saying from Lord Acton? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, it was not to be so. That was not God's design for his king, for the king of Israel, because the kings of Israel were to rely on the law, God's law, and were to rely on God. So back in 1 Samuel 8, Israel's request for a human king is displeasing evil. It's ra'ah to Samuel in his in Samuel's eyes, because they didn't want a Deuteronomy 17 king. Nothing wrong with asking for a king, but the request should have been, will you give us a king as God promised, consistent with God's design back in the law in Deuteronomy 17? That's not the request. The request here that offends Samuel and offends God is not a request for a king, because they're not asking for a Deuteronomy 17 king. It's the request for a king. There's the phrase at the end of verse 5 of chapter 8. Like all the nations. Give us a king with the juice. Give us a king with power. Give us a king with money. Give us a king with a harem. Give us a king with, with an army, with many horses, with chariots, with swords and power. 
That's what we want. That's what their request is. They wanted a king with power that they could see and touch and feel. The power of a standing army, the power of political alliances, the power of monetary wealth. The people wanted to live by sight and not by faith. And they wanted a king who would match their worldview. I mean, that's democracy, right? We have the rulers while we, that we have today because they're a mirror of us. Maybe not those in this room, but of the population at large. This is what the people of Israel want. They want a king who fits their worldview of living by sight and not by faith. They don't want a king who would rely on God and on God's law. They want a king who will think like them. Their request reflected what was in their hearts. Rebellion. They had rejected God as their ultimate authority. God says this plainly. I'm not making this up. It says, God says it plainly there at the end of verse 7. They have not rejected you, Samuel, God says. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Israel's rebellion was nothing new. There's a long, long history of Israel's rebellion. Look what God says in verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Rebellion against God was par for the course for Israel. It was not the norm. It was the, excuse me, it was not the exception. It was the norm. The people had regularly rebelled since the beginning of the nation, early in the Exodus. Remember? Early in the Exodus. They're barely out of Egypt, and Moses is up on, on the mountain getting the law, getting the Ten Commandments, and they say, let's go have this golden calf incident where we make an idol out of a golden calf, and they have this drunken orgy celebrating the idols. And Aaron, who builds the golden calf, even says, this is for Yahweh. He even references Yahweh in the whole event. It doesn't take them long, is my point. In the Exodus, after God has, bring, has brought all those plagues to, to Israel and parts the Red Sea, it doesn't take them long to get into idolatry. This is why God refers to here in verse 8, since the day that I brought them up from Egypt... Idolatry ebbed and flowed throughout the generations in Israel. Of course, there were bright spots. There were bright spots, like the generation that Joshua brought into the land, or the revival that Samuel himself was a part of in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. But these bright spots were few and far between. By and large, Israel had been characterized by idolatry. Israel by and large, did not trust Yahweh. They added their other gods. They hedged. They added the gods of the Canaanites in their pantheon of gods. They worshiped Yahweh, sure. Yeah, 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 we need to do that. But let's kind of hedge. Let, let, let's add some other gods just in case Baal, who's the storm god, I mean, we need water. Maybe Yahweh's not going to deliver. Let's, let's also do a little Baal worship. Their habit was to quit, Israel's habit was to quickly forget Yahweh's faithfulness and mercies, which is what they're doing here in chapter 8. They're forgetting what he had done for them just in the prior chapter through Samuel. That's what this phrase at the end of verse 8 means. They have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. But God, who's always merciful, always gracious, before he drops the hammer... He warns. He gives grace. And He gives grace. And then He gives grace. And then He gives grace. And then after He warns, and, and warning is part of grace, then He drops the hammer. He wants them to repent, so He warns them about the consequences of their rebellious request. Look at verse 9. Now then, listen to their voice. This is Yahweh still speaking to Samuel. Listen to the voice of the people. However, you shall solemnly warn them 
and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. This is an ironic wordplay in the Hebrew. At the end of chapter 7, we saw that Samuel judged Israel, and he judged Israel in a godly fashion. The The word for judge, as we've seen before, the Hebrew word is shafat, which means to judge or to rule or to govern. Here we get the the Hebrew word mishfat. Mishfat means a decision or a judgment. It's translated here a procedure. Samuel shafated, Samuel judged in a godly fashion at the end of of chapter 7. He judged well. There's this prosperity. There's this peace. There's this stability for three decades. He shafated this way. But now, in this passage in verse 9, God is warning the people how the king will mishpat, how he's going to judge, how he's going to issue justice and decisions. And it's going to be very different than Samuel. It's going to be very different. We're going to get this parade of... Maybe we could say this parade of horribles before the chapter's over because God is going to tell Samuel, you warn them, you warn them before they insist on a king. You warn them that the king, this king that they want, they don't want a Deuteronomy 17 king. They don't want my type of king. They want a king like all the other nations. That's what the phrase is, like the other nations. You warn them, Samuel, that a king like that is going to do this and do this and do this, and do this, and do this. And we're going to see next time that Samuel warns them, and the people say, whatever. It's all good. We want a king anyway. And God will say, there you go. He will give them their king. It's a sad situation that's unfolding here in chapter 8, and we'll see more of it next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask that you transform us by it. Let us not approach it and forget it, but embed it in our minds. Transform our streams of consciousness. Transform our ways of thinking and our ways of speaking and our ways of behavior that we may glorify you in what we think and do and say. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.